We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I'd like you to look at John chapter 9 with me. Um, We're still doing Proverbs, but in Proverbs you have to kind of break it up or you're just going to get filled with guilt as you're going down there. And so John chapter 9, let me tell you why this is a fascinating chapter. Uh, The Gospel of John, there are three words that continually circulate through that book. Love, life, and light. The love of God gives us his son. God so loved the world. Uh, In him was life, and he brings to us the very life of God that was lost at Eden that has put this world in such a mess. Everybody wants good, but nobody can get it. We have to be changed, a new creation. So the love of God brings us life. And in him was life, and his life was the light of men. That the light of God is such that when you come to know Christ, you now see things as they really are. You are no longer under the veil of darkness. But uh, as we've said before, you can go to a college and you can learn about math, mechanics, material, and things like this. But as far as meaning where they come from, what they are, what God intends them to be, what a male is, a female, what sexuality, what morality, what right, what wrong, what the home, what government, what children, the, what the universe means, how it got here. If you can make it through life and you don't know math, materials, or um, whatever else I said, you can be okay. If you don't know meaning, can you make it? You cannot. You have to know why things are here and what they're meant to be. The light of God is shed upon those who know the life of Christ. And so this uh, book in chapter eight, Jesus gives the great statement, I am the light of the world. He that knows me does not walk in darkness, but walks in the light of life. Chapter nine is a miracle. It's, as I understand, it's one of the only miracles of the Bible that gets a whole chapter of scripture on this miracle. If I'm not uh, mistaken, I believe the raising of Lazarus from the dead gets an entire chapter. But this is a big thing. There is no uh, legacy of restoring blindness to life in the Old Testament. This is the, the a couple of times it occurs in the New Testament. This is the time that it centers on. And as you look at this blind man that is given light, he's going to look very familiar to you. Guess, he's going to, guess who he's going to look like? He's going to look like you. And we're going to see him healed. And then we're going to see the odyssey that he starts on. And hopefully you're going to see you in this microcosm of an enlightened man. And so watch a fascinating text. In verse one, you see a very sad sight. This was you and me. He passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. Uh, We were conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. Have y'all discovered that who have children, something's wrong with them? Just like your parents found out that we are, something's wrong with our nature. We're dead to God. And so here is a blind man from birth, just like you and I. And Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so we're brought forth in darkness. And in verse two, a common question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? It was a common thought of that day that if you were poor or diseased or whatever, that you were unrighteous. They saw righteousness in Israel at this time as kind of karma. That if you were a good guy, you were healthy and you were prosperous. If you were poor, if you were diseased, it was an obvious retribution because of your sin. Uh, You might remember whenever Jesus uh, uh, talked to the rich young ruler, sell all that you have, come and follow me. He walked away and Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than to get a rich guy into heaven. And the disciples said, then who can be saved? 
because those that were prosperous and rich were thought to be the righteous. And so he's setting that right. And so here is a man that they say, obviously there's a sin involved. And Christ says a very mysterious answer. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. I'm going to use a very painful thing to bring about a higher good. You and I were brought forth in darkness. Are we brought back to a higher level than we were? I'm glad God didn't restore me back to the eighth grade, okay? I don't want to go through junior high again, but I have become as you. We are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. Every man in Christ is a new creation. You must be born again. So God can use a bad thing to bring about a higher good. Ask Joseph, ask David, ask Jesus. And so, verse 3, it's that the works of God, enlightenment, might be displayed in him. I'm going to make this man a living illustration of what God can do with the human life. And so in verse 4, Christ comments on this with the, um, the pronoun we. It's not just that I'm going to do something great, but you and I, we must work the works of him who sent me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have life eternal. I'm going to bring you back higher than you ever fell from. And so we must work the works of him. We have a part in this. As long as it's day, because night is coming when no one can work. Jesus was on this world for 33 years, three years of a ministry, and then darkness fell. And he died, and the disciples huddled in a, in a room, in a house, for fear of the Jews and would not go out. Darkness fell. And they didn't understand what was going on until he rose. In the same way with you and I, the light of God has come and you and I get to work with him to do the works of God, to introduce others to Jesus Christ. We work the works of him who sent him. But with you and I, is night coming someday when no man can work? Yeah, the Bible says, John, or Acts 17, God hath commanded men everywhere to repent, having fixed a day that he will judge the world through a man, having furnished proof to all men and that he has raised him from the dead. The offer of salvation is not a forever offer. Amen. Uh, we must respond as long as today is still called today. Someday the church will be called away and the day of the Lord shall begin and the judgment of God shall fall. And so we work with him knowing that we don't have forever. There's a sense of urgency. How many of you have ever been to downtown Dallas and you've seen uh, Park City's Baptist Church and the steeple goes up high on the skyline of Dallas, and there's a clock on that steeple. And on that clock, it has two words. Anybody know what they are? Night cometh. Isn't that good? Not bad for a bunch of Baptists. <laughs> Night cometh. Amen. Night cometh. We work while it's still day because night is coming. Well, in verse 5, but while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You know, we've had the uh, League of Nations. We had the United Nations, Southeast Atlantic Treaty Organization, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We've had every kind of seeking to try to bring peace. Uh, are we just having a problem? We just can't get these parts to fit. There's something wrong with humans. Uh, we're going to have to have somebody that it said, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to learn his ways, that we may, a word that we may walk in his ways. 
And then men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. You'll be more concerned with life and agriculture than you will about killing people. And so man wants to be better, but he can't fix himself. And so even if you send him to military school, it doesn't matter. We just can't fix it. I am the light of the world. If the, dark, if the darkness hits and the lights go out in here, it's real scary. Do y'all remember what happened in New York City years ago when they had a blackout and the city got plundered and darn near set on fire because all of a sudden it was dark and there was no accountability. It was ch children of darkness. If the light goes out in here, it's real scary because no one knows what really is here. We're walking in the darkness. If one guy has a match, he's worth everything because he can show you what reality really is. And I won't step off this four foot precipice on my head here, okay. And so that's why light is wonderful because you can see truth, what's really here. I am the light of the world. And in verse six, and when he said this, and here's how he brings light. He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied it to the clay of the clay to his eyes. Is there another place in the Bible that God takes clay, probably red clay or Adam red clay, Edom red clay, and applies spit? You know what spit is? It's seen as your life. Whenever you see an identical image of you, you say he is the spitting image. Now you think that means S-P-I-T-N image. No, it's spit and image because your spit is your life. Turn to the person next to you, okay? And just spit, just kidding. But that is your life, okay? When else in the Bible do you see God fashion clay and then breathe on it and the combination of matter and God's life brings forth a human. What was the human's name? Adam. Okay. Uh, you know what human means? Humus. What's humus? It means dirt. Uh, a mortal. What's a morte? Death. Muerta. Morti. A mortician. When God takes life and breathes onto it, you have a human being. He knows he exists. You know what existence means? Ex histime, to stand out from creation and know that you are here. Exist. And so that's how God makes humans. And it's how God remakes humans is he does a new creation and he puts it to your eyes. We're not just gonna change, you know, change out your kidney or give you a liver transplant or give you some art supports. We're going to change your very heart on how you see reality. And so he makes clay of the spittle, but now in verse seven, even though he touches your eyes, you've got to do something. You have to believe him. You have to take him at his word when he makes a preposterous claim that I can restore your eyes. Well, he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. The word Siloam means scent. You go and wash in the pool of the scent one. Where else does he say this? Uh... For we must work the works of him who sent me, who siloamed me. And so you go and wash in the pool of the Messiah, the sent one. You know what's called the sent one? Outside of Jerusalem, you have a, stream, a, a, a spring called Gihon. It means the gushing spring. And whenever the, you would go out there to get your water, when it was the city of David, way down south in Jerusalem, just the city of David. Jerusalem kept getting built upon, okay? Kept getting bigger, kind of like Little Elm, okay? Kept getting bigger. 
And so you would go outside the city. The Assyrians surrounded Israel to destroy it, or surrounded Jerusalem. Remember that time with Hezekiah? And Hezekiah said, why should we give them our water? And he sent out some guys to start digging in the spring of Gihon. And then he got guys inside Jerusalem, inside the walls, to start digging. And they both started digging simultaneously. And then they turned and went toward each other. If you were to try this, how do you think you would do? Even two Aggies, I don't think, could hit it dead on. They hit dead on. And they had now a tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel from the spring of Gihon all the way to the pool of Siloam. And so the water was sent by God in for your life. So go and wash in the pool of Siloam. You can walk through it today if you go on an Israel tour that you can walk down. Buddy, did you ever walk down? Connie, did you walk down? I didn't because I was scared. Yeah, it's very narrow. The water comes to your knees, your thighs, and up to your waist. And you can walk about half a mile through this. And I think you should do that. Okay? <laughs> but I prayed about it and said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, in verse seven, and so will you believe an impossible thing that this man can recreate you? Will you believe that? Well, you're going to have to go in public groping down to the pool of Siloam, and then you're going to have to wash. It doesn't make rational sense. So you do it. And in verse seven, he came back seeing. And now the odyssey begins. Are y'all with me so far? Okay. This is us. The first thing that happens is in verse eight. He is set forth on a pedestal. God says, I'm going to show him off. And so in verse eight, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, no, this is he. Others said, no, he is like him. And so first they ask a question. Didn't this used to be the guy that I grew up with? What happened to him? Do not put your lamp under a bushel, put it on a lampstand that all who see it may see the light. When the apostle Paul made his first visit to Jerusalem, he said, I'm a Christian. You remember what Jerusalem thought about that? Nobody wanted to shake his hand. They said, no, a lot of us may become Christians, but not this guy. That's impossible. God said to Ananias, go and baptize him. Saul of Tarsus. Ananias said, excuse me, are you talking about Saul? God, do you know who this is? Yeah. He is a chosen vessel of mine. And I'm going to display my glory through him. And so people can't believe it that we are the same people that we used to be. Well, in verse 8, he is set on a lampstand. And in verse 9, he says, I am the one that you make a public confession. I'm the one that believed in Christ. And I'm the one that was healed. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, God wants a public confession. Uh, the Passover lamb's blood is put on your door facing. You don't hide it under your bed. We all will see who you are. And so I am the one. Yes. And now in verse 10 and 11, he has to now give an account for the hope that is in him. I've got to explain it. And so in verse 10, they said to him, and they're going to say this word six times in this paragraph. How were your eyes opened? We don't have a, a rational answer for how you see. You were born again? How? How did that happen? That's not reasonable. How did you do that? 
Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it's come from and where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. It's a sovereign act of God that you feel, but you can't explain it or predict it. And so, how were your eyes open? The man who is called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam, wash. I went away and washed, and I received sight. Jesus touched me and said, and I did, and I see. There's a testimony. I was blind, he touched me, and now I see. Well, we continue here in verse 12. And they said to him, where is he? Have y'all noticed that you talk about Christ touching you and giving you life and people said, where is he? I don't see him. No, my senses do not apprehend him, but I've experienced him. Where is he? Are there questions that get asked you that you don't know? I know that's hard to believe. Can there be questions asked to us that we simply don't know? In verse 12, he says, I don't know because he don't know. And so question point is, is he a witness? Yes. Is he an expert witness that has all the answers? He is not. You shall be my witnesses. We witness that God touched us and people start hearing the same statement from us. Do we know everything? Can you explain the virgin birth, the Trinity, the incarnation, the atonement, the nature of God and man in one person? Can you explain how a body came back to life and passed through the grave clothes, passed through the stone, became material and ascended into heaven? I can't either. We're not expert witnesses. It's like the guy testifies at a trial. Did you see this guy shot? Yes, I did. Here comes the defending attorney. Did you see what kind of gun it was? No. Was that a hollow point? No. How many times did he shoot him? Did you notice where he shot him? How long did it take before this guy went down? Defe uh, prosecuting attorney stands. Sir, this man is a witness. He is not a ballistics expert. All he's telling you is what he saw. You and I. I did not come to you, Paul said, with, um, uh, what did he say? I did not come to you with superiority of speech, proclaiming the testimony of God. I presumed to know nothing among you, but Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to play your philosophic game. All right. Billy Graham had to go and speak to Oxford when he was a young evangelist. And he was nervous. Would you be nervous about speaking to Oxford? that they would ask you questions that you didn't know. And uh, he met a guy at Oxford named Clive Staples Lewis. They called him C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis said to young Billy Graham from North Carolina, he said, Billy, remember, we're sinners, all of us. He said, I know them, they're sinners. You don't have to get erudite with us. We know that stuff. What we need to know is how we can be forgiven. Isn't that good? And so, in verse 13, this man who was set forth and confessed uh, and given an answer, now in verse uh, 13, they're going to go get the authorities. They brought the Pharisees, to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. We're going to put you in front of the philosophic board now. Um, a parallel text was when the Apostle Paul went to Athens. And he went to a certain place that all the philosophers gathered called Mars Hill. And Paul spoke directly. And when he spoke of the resurrection, they mocked him. He didn't change his message. He spoke to those guys. And so they bring him to the Pharisees. And in verse 14... Enmity is about to arise. You're going to see a trap set. And then you're going to see the trap sprung on this man. It was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Hey, what are you not supposed to do on the Sabbath? 
work. So it's the Sabbath. In verse 15, the Pharisees were asking him again, how did this happen? What was the method that this invisible thing happened? How did it happen? Well, he applied clay to my eyes, I washed and I see. In verse 16, put down the word aha, because that's what they said. Aha! Some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division. Simeon said when Christ got named in the temple, this child is appointed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. He's gonna bring a sword between a man and his son and a woman and her daughter-in-law. Uh, what else did he say? Then he said, Mary, a sword's gonna pierce your heart. This boy, with all the good he brings, is not going to be received well. He came to his own, and his own received him not. In verse 17, enmity now arises. This man is an evil man. Ergo, if you got touched by him and you support him, you are evil also. Now, young man, would you like to set yourself against the board of the Pharisees? And so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Verse 17 is called taking a stand. He said, he's a prophet. I don't think he's a sinner. I think he's a good guy. He takes a stand. And now in verse 18 and 19, he's accused of being part of a con. You're a bad guy. In verse 19, I'm sorry, 18, the Jews didn't believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight. That can't be true. Why? Because that's impossible. There's no way you can have new life. So there must be a scam right here. You're some kind of deceiver. You know, Voltaire of the Enlightenment, he called Christianity priestcraft. Marx called it the opiate of the people. It's an evil thing, is Christianity. Frederick Nietzsche said the two most evil men in history were Moses and Jesus Christ because they brought, he wrote a book you don't want to read, called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He was a god that declared what moral truth was in Persia. And so Nietzsche wrote the book, Thus Spake Zarathustra, that the greatest evil is when we said stuff was right and wrong. Isn't that something? He gave birth to what was called Nazism. Matter of fact, Adolf Hitler would give his books as a present to people. Y'all were dying to know that. <laughs> okay. And so they said uh, to his parents, is this your son who was born blind? How does he now see? We're gonna bring his parents in. Is this your kid? And they know they're gonna say, no, this is not my kid. But he does have a doppelganger out there that looks just like him. They know it. This is a con. You're not Jesus. You're Elmer Gantry. His parents said, we know this is our son. He was born blind. How he now sees? We don't know. Who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Why did they say that in 22? His parents said this because they were, what's the word? Afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he is to be put out of the synagogue. That's called excommunication. It's a living death. And so now this kid goes from standing with Christ, now he is accused of being part of a con. You're the worst thing ever happened to our country. You remember what they said about the Jews in Egypt? They're gonna grow and take over our country. We need to kill their babies. 
and throw them in the, to the gators out there. Well, in verse, uh, let's see, 23, the parents for this reason said, he is of age, ask him. In other words, you tell me. The Pharisees have turned on him. And now who stands against him and will not stand with him? Answer, his father and his mother. I will not stand with you. In verse 24, a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Where does that sound familiar to you? Give glory to God. It's when Joshua had Achan on trial before they stoned him. Did you hide gold in your tent? Give glory to God. Meaning you're the enemy. So give glory to God before you die. When they say to him, give glory to God, meaning you're an enemy of the Jews. And so you need to speak up right now because no true Jew is going to be a believer in Christ. Does this sound like a text that is prophetic of what's to come? Yeah, if you're truly a good Jew, you will not mention this name. Did you ever see the great Christian movie, Driving Miss Daisy? You remember Daisy was going with Hoke, Morgan Freeman, over to the house of Bewley, Dan Aykroyd, on Christmas, and Bewley, the Jewish boy, was gonna have a Christmas party. And Miss Daisy just could not understand that. Would you look at that? She saw all the Santa Claus and the angels and all that stuff out in the front yard. Would you look at that? If her old grandfather was here, he'd snatch her bald. And then she gave Hoke something wrapped up. Hoke, I want to give this to you. She had taught Hoke how to read, how to learn his letters. She gave him a McGuffey's reader, oh, much as. And then she said, I'm going to give you this. Well, thank you, Miss Daisy. And he, she said, uh, this is not a Christmas present. We don't believe in Christmas and we don't give presents. I had a guy at our church that I discipled years ago who won the gold medal at the Sydney Games in wrestling. And uh, he would sign his autographs. Brandon Slay, John 112. To as many as received him to give the right to become the children of God. And a kid brought back the uh, picture and said, Mama said, I can't take this. Why not? We're Jewish. I cannot ally myself with this name. Isn't that something? Here's where it starts. And so, in verse 24, he is threatened. And what does he say in 25? Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind... Now I see he keeps playing that record because a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. He changed my life. And so in verse 26 and 27, he now becomes a defender of the faith. And they said to him, what did he do? Notice the next word, how? That's the sixth time. Let me ask you, do we ever get confronted with this? I believe that Jesus Christ came and touched my life and I was saved. Well, that's all well and good. How do you know he came? The Bible tells me so. How do you know he touched you? Well, I experienced him. Then how did it happen? He came into your life? Yeah. What came into your life? And what do you mean by life? And what do you mean came into? And how did he come into your life? Well, the third person of the Trinity that has the essential nature of God shared by the Father and the Son came into my spirit. And because it is spirit, it's non-corporeal, so it can take up its residence. Oh, shut up. I want to know in this test tube. I remember one time early on in my Christian life in a weight room, a guy named Chris. I shared my testimony with him. And he was a psychology prophet, TW. And he just stopped me. He said, wait a minute. I can't put that in a test tube. I went, what? But that was his deal. If I can't understand it and touch it, it can't be true. Because the ultimate standard of truth is more me. 
So how did this happen? In verse 27, this guy now becomes a defender of the faith. He becomes an apologist. He said, how did he open? I've told you already and you didn't listen. You notice he's getting kind of cocky. Why do you want to hear it again? Obviously, you didn't ask that because you didn't understand what I said. You know what I said. He touched me. Your problem is you don't accept it. And so, do you want to become his disciples too? You notice the word too? That means he considers himself a disciple of Christ. I like this guy. Verse 28, they, what's your word? They reviled him. So this boy now becomes a sufferer for Christ. And then in verse 28, they say, you're his disciple, we're disciples of Moses. That if you're truly a Jew, you will not name this man if you're really a Jew. When we were at uh, our trip to, where did we go? Buddy, you were there. <laughs> we went to Prague, okay. And we were looking at the oldest still used synagogue in the world. I believe it was from the uh, 16th century. And on the inside, it was old, but they still had the seats around the outside that they would sit in. They had the elevated area for the reading of the law and the roof was in kind of cupolas, okay? They were rounded kind of domes and they would have a beam going this way and a beam going this way to uphold those domes. And then the guide said, you'll notice that on each of those domes, there's two beams. And then there is a beam caddy corner from the center out to the perimeter. And she said, do you know why that beam is there on each one of them? It wasn't four points, it was five. And we didn't. And she said, no synagogue could have a cross anywhere visible in that synagogue. And so they put a non-supporting beam just to break the symmetry. I'll be darned. You want to be his disciple? Absolutely not. We're disciples of the Bible. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus spoke to them the things concerning him. You know what Christ could have said? Moses, yeah, I met him not that long ago on Mount Hermon, on the, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. I know him well. Well, they're saying a true Jew cannot mention that name. Well, in verse 29, A, we know that God has spoken to Moses. This man, we don't know where he is from. We can't answer this question. Verse 30, the man answered and said, well, here's an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, but he opened my eyes. It's almost like he's saying, is there a possibility that truth is found outside of your giant brain? Maybe you're not the final standard of truth. Maybe. And so, in, I mean, I'm a blind guy and I know more than you. In verse 31, A, God doesn't hear sinners. B, if anyone's God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. C, since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anybody's opened the eyes of a man born blind. D, if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And do you notice there's nothing more that he says? He leaves it in silence, deafening silence. A, B, C, D, voila. He leaves it to them. You gotta make a choice. There is no way a bad guy does this. This guy did this. Silence. It's like he's saying to the judge, I rest my case. He has now become an evangelist and he has brought them to the valley of decision. Y'all remember Billy Graham's magazine, D, 
Decision Magazine. You've got to make the call right here. Well, what they say is verse 34, it's very ironic. You were born entirely in sins and you're teaching us. Boy, you got hay in your hair. And so they, what's the last three words? Put him out. They kicked him out of the nation. You know what's ironic? They had been arguing that he wasn't born blind. Their finally, final argument is, you were born entirely in sins. And thus, you were born blind. They admit what they had been trying to refute. They became their own. I mean, he could have said, the blind man could have said when they say that, you were born completely in sins. He could have said, checkmate. I got you. Well, in verse 35, isn't this great? Jesus heard that they had put him out because now he's condemned. He's now the living dead. Question, is this a good text for us that have to go on display and account for who we are and tell who touched us? And then maybe the nation, maybe the intelligentsia, maybe our own family stays, stands against us, but we have to stand. Do you have to answer every question? No, but you have to give glory to God. That's who did it. And you have to be willing to be seen when men speak evil against you falsely on account of the Son of Man. Blessed are the prophets who went before you. So in verse 35, Jesus heard they had put him out and he comes a running. And finding him, Jesus finds his sheep. They may have kicked you out, but I'm gonna take you in. And I think he said, blind boy, we still don't know his name. I wanna introduce you to Simon Peter. This is James the Less, little Jimmy to his friends. This is his brother. And then James and John, this is Matthew. You've got new people. Mary, could you come over here? I wanna introduce you to Mary. And so there's a new group that this boy becomes aware of. Jesus said to him, do you, he's gonna take him deeper. Do you believe in the son of man? That's a term from Daniel chapter seven about the Messiah, the son of man. Do you believe in him? He said, who is he Lord that I may believe in him? His thought is, if you gave me sight, then you can tell me anything about the Bible and I will believe it. The apostle Paul said, until this day when Moses is read in the synagogue, a veil lies over their heart. They can't understand it. But when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now you understand because you understand Christ. Jesus said to Peter, I'm gonna go and be killed. Peter said, this will never happen to you. After he rises from the dead, Peter takes Psalms, Isaiah, Joel, the prophets, and he preaches in Acts chapter two like a Bible authority. When you know Christ, all the rest of your Bible opens up. Amen? This guy, it happens to him. And he says, if you say what it is, it's true. I'm not gonna argue with it. He says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe? You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. You're face to face with the Messiah, you and him. Can you believe that the oracle of God can now stand one-on-one -on -one with a blind man who has no name even given to us? But I know who you are. And so he said, Lord, I believe, verse 38, and he, what's your verb? Worshiped. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He now goes deeper. He's not just a good man. He's not just a sinless man. He's not just a prophet. He's the Messiah. He is God. And so verse 40, Christ says, let me comment on this. Or verse 39, for judgment, I came into the world. I came to separate human beings who you are depends on how you respond to me. That's the litmus test of who you are. 
Those who don't see may see. If you admit that you're blind and you're ignorant and you're weak and you're sinful, I'm gonna give you sight. But you have got to fit into that doorway of the admittance of the truth of who you are, that you're, you're a sinner. So if you don't see, I'm gonna give you sight. And those who see, they're too cool for God. I'm smart enough, I'm strong enough, I'm holy enough. Do you believe in Christ? I think Christ is good for some people, the ignorant and the weak. Me? No. I don't need him. I'm beyond God. I'm that smart. And so Christ said, those who see, you're gonna become blind. You're not gonna have a clue what the truth is. Those of the Pharisees who are with him heard him say these things. They said, you're not talking about us. We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said, if you were blind, if you admitted your need, then you would have no sin. Sin being the rejection of Christ. If you admitted your need, you would have no blindness to me. You would accept me. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Your sin remains. This is a awful minor note to the Pharisees and the Jewish nation. Since you don't need him, your sin remains. Jerusalem said to Pilate, his blood be on us and our children. Your sin remains. I went one time to the, oh, in Dallas, that cemetery, Sparkman, and they had a Jewish section over there. All the others had crosses. You were buried under the cross. On that one, it was a statue of Moses with his hair blowing, holding the law of God, looking out. And so you died under the inexorable law of God. Not a lot of hymns for that. In verse chapter 10, he now turns to the blind man and he said, young man, I want you to know, whoever doesn't enter by the door of the sheep but comes in another way is a robber. These guys that have taught your nation are robbers. He that enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And he said in verse 20 and verse seven, I'm the door. From here on out, any shepherd who comes who does not come through Christ, you don't go with him. I'm the door and I'm the good shepherd. Anybody who comes for my sheep has to acknowledge me, the true Messiah. And then he says in verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them that they'll hear my voice and they'll become one flock with one shepherd. The Jewish elect responded, who are the sheep of another fold? It's you, it's me, and I'm gonna bring them all out. Ecclesia, the called out ones. The elect are gonna hear my voice. It's gonna be like close encounters. When you have something in you that says, I gotta go to this place, and you all meet there, and you're about to leave this earth, don't email me, okay? But that's what salvation is. When you hear the voice of God, when he speaks, everybody else mocks you, but you go because you know you're weak, you're sinful, and you're, you're ignorant. And so you go, and I have sheep of another fold. I'm gonna have Jews, and then I'm gonna have Cornelius and all that follow him, and I'm gonna bring them into one flock. What's that one flock called? The church. Fascinating. 
And so if you're here this morning and you know you are sinful and you are weak and you are ignorant, we got a religion for you. There's the escuchan on our coat of arms. It's when God came down and became to us truth, became to us righteousness, became to us punishment so that we could open our hands and accept it because we are stupid. Amen? There's a great hymn called Stupid, Stupid, I Am Stupid. Uh, it's not a lot of words to it, but that's what it's about. And that's who we are. If that insults you, you don't need to come here because this place is for blind, sinful, weak, ignorant people, which happens to be what you are. You're just faking it that you really are strong because you're going to die slowly and ignorantly. But you're not going to die in the truth. Come, come. All you've got to lose is yourself. Father in heaven, thank you for a Sunday to sing, to be sung to, to acknowledge leaders in the church, to pray, and to study a whole chapter in the New Testament about a nameless man that Christ found and said, you're my boy. And you're the first of a great bunch of Jews. And I'm going to get a bunch of brothers in this family. And you don't know who they are yet. I'm going to get them from Patagonia. I'm going to get them from Argentina. I'm going to get them from Honduras and Ecuador. I'm going to get them from Canada and France and Germany. And Italy, I'm going to get them from Central America. I'm going to get them from the Antarctic. I'm going to get them all over this world. And I'm going to call them out. And they're going to hear the door slam behind them. But I'm going to take them home. And then I'm going to shut the door on the ark. And night cometh. Thank you. That God of all the things that we might fear in life. We don't fear what's on the other side. And that's going to be forever. And whose presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forever. In his name we thank you. Amen.